Welcome to the FilmLinks Podcast. An epic podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 136, Wilder, Not Wilder. Yeah, we, we got the names right. I'm really excited. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we'll get it right through the whole podcast. I know, I'm kind of waiting to count the number of times that we say Wilder after doing last month's episode. Yes, yes, yeah. We're, we're talking about another uh immigrant from Europe who was Jewish and fled the Nazis and became a very famous and prolific uh director in America and happens to have a similar name and work in a similar time frame to someone who fits all those same categories um and also have been friends with that guy. Uh, we're talking yep. about William Wyler instead of Billy Wilder who we talked about last time on the show. Um and before we and talk it is, about, I refreshed myself on in the uh, AFI's convo book in Billy Wilder's chapter. He talks about going to an event where everyone like applauds him and and uh, you know honors him for the work that he's doing in film with the war and stuff like that. And uh, then they play Mrs. Miniver's, and that, <laughs> that is a William Wilder film, not a Billy Wilder film. Oh man, yeah, Mrs. Miniver does come up in this uh, in this bio, so. Um, mm. Let's talk about the man before we talk about his movies. Uh, so William Wyler was born in 1901 in Alsace-Lorraine. And if you don't know too much about world history, you might not know that name. But it is a highly contested piece of land in Europe, or at least was during the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries uh, between France and Germany. It changed hands a bunch of times. And essentially when he was born there, it was part of Germany. And now it is part of France. Um, so it's a little confusing, it, even though a lot of the people there speak German. So it, it's, a, it's a whole thing. But he holds both German, uh, U.S. eventually, and Swiss citizenship because his father was a Swiss citizen. But all that to say that he kind of came from this era and part of this very cosmo cosmopolitan continental Europe, the kind that we see hyped up in versions of old Lubitsch movies like The Grand Hotel, where mm -hmm. everybody is from everywhere and everyone can communicate even though they have different cultures and languages. Um, even in Nochka. Even in Nochka. Um, but his mother uh, was actually a cousin of Universal founder Carl Limley, um, which is a big part of his story. Uh, so he was connected from birth to Hollywood, um, which makes it quite interesting. He has a reputation of being a troublemaker and he had it from uh, the time he was a kid. Um, he was known as a troublemaker and slacker in school um, and spent most of his time instead going to the theater or early uh, film cinemas um, and staging plays at home, uh, which this is all a recipe for becoming a film director, apparently. I've seen versions of this so many times now. Uh, staging plays bios. at home is the old-fashioned version of taking your parents' handy cam camcorder and shooting movies in the woods. Yeah, nowadays you'd have a... YouTube or TikTok channel, um, yeah. which is, it's just weird. It, it's interesting how it changes, but it's always a thing. Um, but anyway, he was set to inherit and take on the family haberdashery, which if you don't know what that is, it is a men's clothing store, typically one that sells hats, but they can sell other things like shirts, suits, ties, and other uh, textile goods. Uh, accoutrement. Accoutrement. Um, he, but he, as he was apprenticing, he spent a year in Paris working at a clothing score, store and just had 
a terrible time of it. He hated the work. He was barely paid anything. He couldn't afford rent and slept and uh, basically just hung out in the street most of the time. Uh, he hated every second of it. And by the time he came back, um, his mother knew that he was never going to go into haberdashing. So uh, that that hat ship sailed. He or uh, She called Cousin Limley in America for help. And sure enough... Uh, William Wyler, I almost said Billy Wilder, uh, was uh, hired as a Universal Studios messenger for the New York office. So he was, uh, he even enjoyed first class passage to NYC until he realized that that first class passage was actually coming out of his first few months paycheck. Um, and he also had a rough time of it in New York. He worked as a Universal messenger, but again, he kind of, um, spent some time being the troublemaker and losing jobs and getting jobs. And he spent a year in the New York army national guard as a profession and lifestyle for a while. Uh, but eventually he would go move to Hollywood to become a director. And by the way, he's all very young while this is happening. He came to New York as like a teenager. And by the time he goes to Hollywood, he's like 23. Um, he started off as a member of a swing gang, um, which if you don't know what that is, which is fair because it's not really a thing anymore. Not the same it, as a taxi dancer like we talked about last month. Yeah, we're, we've been all these weird like twenty <laughs> early 20th century's vocab in here. Anyway, he was part of a swing gang. They were a crew who uh, would change sets very fast um, on silent film studio lots. So silent, uh, silent film studio lots are very different than the sound studios that we have today because you don't need to set up for sound recording so everything's pretty much squished together it's very loud it's very hectic there's people running all over the place because you don't have to worry about sound all you have to make sure is that no one's in frame besides the actors when the camera's rolling so the they would be running around and switching out gear or running to fetch things for people on sets as often as they could think an early version of like a grip pa combo uh but even faster paced and more different than you could imagine. But he was still a troublemaker, goofed off, got fired, but eventually during this period from 1923 to 1925, he would, um, he kind of doubled down on the idea of becoming a director and basically got his craft together um, and got an assistant directed gig, showed up to work on time, and eventually became the youngest studio on the, or the youngest director on the studio lot in 1925, at the age of, I think, 24, um, he was directing Westerns, silent Westerns, mostly at the time. Uh, and eventually, in he would. this is the start of his director's career. So by 1929, he was directing talkie films, starting with Hell's Heroes, um, which was the first on-location uh, sound picture shot by Universal. Um, it was a Western set in one of, in like Arizona or something like that. I don't think Monument Valley, but think kind of like Monument Valley. Anyway, by this time, he had also become a naturalized citizen of the U.S. He kept shooting lots and lots of films in the 30s, um, which is super important when we talk about these kind of working directors of the early stages of classical Hollywood, how they got so good. Well, they just did it a whole bunch, really. Yeah. They, they had an interest, and they just did it a whole bunch. So when we talk about him doing all these these kind of like line pictures and assignment pictures that don't stick out in his catalog now, 
But when he's experimenting with different genres and working with different actors and different crews and learning about all this stuff, that's when he starts to develop his skill as a director and develop his style as a director. And speaking of style, he actually developed a partnership during this time period with famous cinematographer Greg Toland of Citizen Kane fame. Mm -hmm. And together, they kind of, uh, not really fully invented, but further refined and popularized the deep focus style, which is always talked about when we talk about Citizen Kane, where you have a scene that is very deep, it's all in focus, and there's different layers of action, some close to the camera, some farther away, and you can kind of see it all. It's all choreographed together by the director to kind of make some kind of logical sense and develop deeper meaning from a single shot, which is Some really famous instances of that that we're going to talk about in these movies today. Oh, for sure, for sure. The bar and... Oh, uh, yeah. And... um, Oh, and the best years of our life. All of Ben Hur, all of Ben Hur, even just his his habit of just letting. It, we'll talk about all that when we yeah. get into the, the the detail. But anyway, another thing to note about Weiler is that he had all sorts of friendships in the industry. There are very few people in the industry who talk badly about William Weiler. Um, there's a few, but there's there's very few, and a lot of them who talk surprisingly highly when of we him. Get into his his directing style. His later directing style kind of gets full Kubrick, uh, but it takes him a while to get there. Um, During the earlier parts of his career, he works with people like Betty Davis and Laurence Olivier, and they both actually credit him with, uh, in Olivier's case, teaching him how to act for the camera, and in Davis's case, directing some of the best performances and most Oscar-winning performances of her career. Um, And he had a reputation, actually, for getting very famous actors to do these great performances and getting them, um, getting them Oscar nominations and often Oscar wins. And let me tell you, if you want to succeed in Hollywood, having that reputation is a good one to have. Yeah, uh, it will attract all of the all of the actors to you. But he also had really good friendships with uh, people, other directors like John Huston and obviously Billy Wilder. In Huston's case, he uh, met Huston while. He was directing Houston's father, who was an actor, and we've talked about before, on the movie House Divided in 1931. And he helped John Houston out multiple times when John Houston was kind of going through his uh, years in the wilderness, for lack of a better term, and kind of being poor and wandering around from city to city and not really having a full idea of what he wanted to be or where he wanted to work. Um, anyway, he started making pictures more stylized and more signature of the William Wyler style and him as a director uh, closer to 1931 when he worked on Mrs. Miniver, uh, which came out before uh, Pearl Harbor, which is important to note. And it was kind of meant to make America less isolationist. And earlier versions of the film were actually more extreme in their uh, anti-Axis, anti-Nazi propaganda. But interesting fact, and I think we've talked about this before with Charlie Chaplin, the mood in America pre-Pearl Harbor was very interesting uh, because essentially a lot of people just didn't want war and it was seen as a bad thing to be too anti-Nazi yeah. because that could lead to war. So there were a lot of things in place. For instance, the Hayes office, the uh, censorship board of Hollywood at the time, uh, could ban a film for being too anti-Nazi, which is just wild to think about now. Um, Did not age but, well. It, it doesn't really age well at all, does it? But, yeah, 
So that that was a thing, and it kind of curbed the more extremist points in Mrs. Miniver. But Mrs. Miniver still comes across as a very um, rallying movie to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted. Uh, William Wyler signed up with the United States Air Force and agreed to make movies for them. Among them, two very famous documentaries, The Memphis Bell, which will be talked about in the bonus podcast, and Thunderbolt, which features, although I don't think stars, Jimmy Stewart. After the war, uh, he would go on to make uh, just lots of critically acclaimed films and increasingly a larger and larger number of epics, uh, movies that are like over two and a half hours in length. And we're talking about two of them today, actually, The Best Years of Our Lives, which is over three hours, and Ben-Hur, which is way over three hours, um, which are both very big movies um, and will be very fun to talk about. Um, And eventually, in the 60s, he continued to branch out. This is kind of the last decade where he really worked a lot. I think he had one movie in the 70s. Um, He branched out into newer and newer genres and kept... Uh, inventing him, inventing new ways to direct with newer genres uh, that he hadn't experimented with before, like musicals or serial killers, uh, one of which we'll talk about today. Um, and he even directed Barbara Streisand in her first uh, film role in Funny Girl. And he actually did a lot of the same stuff they did for Olivier, where he kind of essentially taught Streisand how to work on camera versus on stage. Yeah. And they actually got along famously well, which is shocking because Streisand does not have a reputation for getting along with a lot of people famously <laughs> well. Um, but it seems to be, after looking at some of Weiler's comments, that she essentially recognized Weiler's talent and Weiler recognized her talent and they started to get along way better. Which is funny because I watched Funny Girl the other day and it's not too dissimilar from the relationship and uh, colleague, um, the, essentially the professional relationship between uh, Barbara Streisand's character in that movie and Ziegfeld in that movie, which I find quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that pretty much catches us up on the background of William Wyler. I'm going to stop rambling now. Jonathan, what uh, movies are we actually talking about today specifically? All right, we're kicking off. We're kind of highlighting his post-war years because that's when most of his big hits. He did have some some really famous films from before, but we're focusing on the post-war films, starting with The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946, uh, based on 1946 novella of the same name. Um, I think production on the film started less than a year after the war ended. Um, starring Frederick March, Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, uh, and a few others, it's definitely an ensemble-type film. Um, notable for the first non-actor Uh, Harold Russell to win an Oscar. We're going to talk about him a lot. He's also the only person to win two Oscars for the same role, um, which is really interesting because basically I think what happened based on the way that it's described on Wikipedia is that the, the Academy gave him an honorary Oscar because they thought he was a long shot. But since being in the film in the way that he is, which again, we're going to talk about uh, they thought that he deserved it. And then he ended up winning the votes too. So he had the honorary Oscar and the official Best Supporting Actor for the same role. That's um, such an Oscar thing to happen. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and this film is one of the first of the first twenty-five films to be included in the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress, which we don't talk about too much. But I think that's it's kind of a, a status symbol for um, for certain films, and uh, a lot of these fit that. So that's why I wanted to include it. 
Um, we'll be following that up with Roman Holiday from 1953, starring the best Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, and Gregory wow, Peck. Wow, we're doing <laughs> that? Just gotta okay. slip that in Jeez. every time. Dang. Um, wow, freaking actually, <laughs> shooting shots already. Uh, and this is actually her, her breakout role. Um, and this film, actually, on casting, turned down by Cary Grant because he thought he was too old to play the romantic lead opposite Audrey Hepburn, even though it's kind of a semi-romance thing. Um, but see our episode on Charade, episode 63, for more about that story. Um, yeah, and they that's actually really funny. Did that's not together. the only... Yeah, that's not the only time he turned down working with Audrey Hepburn in a role as well. I think we literally talked about last week, he turned down the role in Sabrina because yeah, of the right. same reason. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, yeah. Um, and the film was written by Dalton Trumbo, who was on the blacklist at the time. Um, uh, and there were some other writers on there, but he, he wasn't actually credited. So that's a whole other aspect of the political drama that goes on with Hollywood. This film is also in the National Film Registry. And then we're going to be talking about one of the most epic films of all time, Ben-Hur from 1959, based on the novel Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ from 1880. Uh, it's a remake of the 1925 film, which I believe William Wyler was also involved in. in a he was an assistant director. Position. Yeah. One of 30 assistant directors, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, assistant directors and, and supporting directors in this film, too, because there had to be. Um the film stars Charlton Heston and Jack Hawkins, and this film is also in the National Film Registry. And finally, we're going to be talking about The Collector from 1965, which is a giant change of pace, uh, based on... It's very different. <laughs> based on the novel The Collector by John Cohn, starring Terrence Stamp and Samantha Edgar. All right, Jason, without further ado, let's jump right into the best years of our lives from 1946. Take it away. The Best Years of Our Lives, from 1946. After World War II ends, three veterans in the Midwestern town of Boone City are left to pick back up where their lives left off pre-war. Sergeant Al Stevenson goes back to being a banker, but with a different outlook on money and a family that spent a lot of years growing without him. Bombardier Fred Derry had a whirlwind wedding to a slick dame before he left and finds himself returning to a whirlwind marriage and a job that views his service as a disservice to his career. Finally, Petty Officer Homer Parrish, barely out of high school before the war, finds himself back home with prosthetic hooks in place of hands. His family and fiancé try hard to show him love, but Homer has to figure out how to first live with himself. All right, Alex, this film is... the. What I kind of took away from it is that it's like a mosaic of, of showing intimate relationships in a, a you know, I mean... We, we the term is very common now, but in a post-traumatic world, like the entire world was basically post-traumatic. Um, and this is one of the first films that actually displays uh, PTSD. Um, it wasn't even a thing. They were still figuring it out. Uh, you can go back to there's the John Ford film, Let There Be Light, about the psychiatric institutions of uh, of for veterans after World War II. But this film really takes three different perspectives on how you come back from a traumatic event and you either have to re-engage in your intimate relationships, uh, form new intimate relationships, or what happens when your former intimate relationships start to crumble around you. And there's, it's so sensitive around all of those things. Uh, and 
and it it pulls it off really well. But it's it's kind of fascinating and heartbreaking to watch, which is the point. Like there's there's no way to do this in like a joyful way, I guess. No, 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 no. It's it's super well done. And William Wyler's a really good person to direct this, obviously. Oh, yeah. uh, Because he came back from the war, too. And um, he even uh, suffered. I couldn't find details, probably because I didn't dig too deep. But he did suffer an injury that impacted his hearing. During the it war was as from well, being so. in the Memphis Belt. The the engines in those planes would make a lot of the pilots and crew go deaf. Oh wow! And so that's what I think he regained some hearing in one ear, but was totally deaf in in uh, the other ear. Yeah, he's straight up in the plane while they're being shot at and doing a bombing run. Like yeah. that's how they made that documentary. So um, he's. I mean, there, I don't think there's any mistake in the the him making one of the characters a bombardier. The main uh, one, yeah, and and he has this whole sequence of sitting in one of the planes being scrapped and having a uh, nervous breakdown, basically. And that I yeah. think that wasn't in the script. I I want to say that in the AFI chapter, he says that they basically were there filming that bit, and he was just like, "Let's have him just have this full full on breakdown because he knows he knows the mind space of these characters that he's portraying." Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, it's such a good deep dive into trauma and like how that's carried. Um, and even into like the idea of like getting even deeper, like how the idea of, uh, the anticipation of trauma can lead to rush decisions. For instance, like our bombardier's marriage, (laughs) right? Um, which was clearly rushed before the fact of, uh, before he left for war. Um, and, and how you have to wrangle with that after the fact, once life's returned to pace, how other people who didn't suffer the trauma in the same way can't really understand. Um, at, at its most fundamental level, it's a really, really good drama. Um, like, a, it, it may be one of the best examples of, like, that kind of storytelling and j- drama as a genre in of itself, which we don't see super often anymore. But uh, yeah. just just to see it... But the Trauma other thing is really, like a characteristic of a film. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, and there's there's lots of smiling and laughter in here too, right? But it's about these people dealing with something that um, is hard, and also they had no control over, which immediately makes them also super sympathetic, um, and also you know they don't. Uh, maybe one of the things that helps it so much is that they're not really whiny. <laughs> they they well, just, yeah. they're just, they're just dealing with it. Right. Like the nickname for that generation is the silent generation because they came back from war and just didn't talk about it. And you can see that here. Um, and maybe it's because it was too much trauma to speak of. And maybe it was because um, nobody back home would understand. Like when Frederick March's character is trying to, show these objects that he picked up in the war to his son and his son's like uh, but atomic power isn't good and he's like yeah okay but I was wasn't talking about that yeah the armchair uh, into in, intellectualizing of the war being met by the people who lived it yeah yeah the lived experience versus the theoretical experience clashing um, but maybe one of the best things about this is not just that it is such a good example of a drama but that it is such a perfect drama for 1946, right? Yeah. Like it is, 
it's very it is the timely perfect drama for that year. Yeah, yeah. And it, it basically, it also is known as the movie that kind of filled the same slot as and essentially beat out in the box office and in Academy um, races It's a Wonderful Life, which came out in the same year um, and kind of came out around the same time. They were both basically holiday movies um, and lost out big to the best mm-hmm. years of our lives. And a lot of times... It's a Wonderful Life is really popular, mostly because of its syndication through the 60s, 70s, and 80s on TV. So it became a classic holiday film that way. Um, and a lot of people know that one a lot better. And sometimes when you hear about It's a Wonderful Life, you start doing research on it. You hear about the best years of our lives this way. And you're like, oh, man, it's like how green was our valley. It beat out the better movie. I don't <laughs> I don't like it. And then you go watch it like you go watch How Green Was Our Valley. And you're like, oh, this is actually a really good movie. Yeah. Um, because it is because it, and, and one of the best like facts that could demonstrate that is the fact that it's over three hours long it feels like it's an hour long and at the end of it yeah, you're like really but does. i want more yeah <laughs> i i would like to see the rest of the best years of their lives <laughs> so yeah and i and i was thinking about that dichotomy because you you'd brought it up before we started prep for the episode and i hadn't seen this one before so i was thinking about that dichotomy between it's Wonderful Life and the Best Years of Our Lives. And it's interesting because they do take place in the same period. Uh, you know, It's Wonderful Life is is almost like the mirror reflection of this. It's the the civilian life because uh, Jimmy Stewart's character isn't able to go to the war. And so he lives his life at home while, while the war is happening and, you know, is kind of trying to cope with a personal life that doesn't turn out the way that he wants it to. Um and I, I feel like in some ways It's a Wonderful Life is more timeless in the fact that the, the struggles and stuff are kind of ever present of, you know, what happens when your life keeps getting derailed from your plans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The Best Years of Our Lives is an equally excellent film, and but it does have a lot more to say for a very specific point in history. Um, mm-hmm. And it says it so well that I think, you know, if we're talking about awards and stuff, it needed to be recognized at the time, but in terms of its legacy, it has, and it, it still has a legacy. It's just a very different type of legacy than it's a wonderful life. I think they both ended up kind of with what they, with recognition that they deserved, right? Like one ended up becoming a a classic because of the very reasons you described and one ended up being the best, best Oscar of that best picture quote, best picture of that year uh, because of its prescience um, and we've talked before about how much the Oscars don't really matter, but how we're also all suckered into using them as a barometer. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this one, this one's really good. It's just really good. Um, even in its use of, oh, let's talk some technique. Um, we've talked okay. about kind of like the setup, but let's talk some technique. Um, well, before we get to camera stuff, actually, I want to talk about acting um, because this mm-hmm. one's really important. And especially because a lot of this, the work that I did on this episode and lead up to it was basically as a contrast to last week's episode, um, which was about Billy Wilder, specifically because we kind of conjoined the two. Yeah. Uh, and Billy Wilder is super, super stylistic. And William Wilder is, in a lot of ways, kind of the antithesis of that. Like Can he you has a very break distinct... that down for me? What you mean by that? Uh, Billy Wilder being stylistic? Yeah, what do you mean by stylistic in this context? 
In this context, it's less like our modern idea of stylism, where there's a lot of very obvious effects and such. Yeah, because in that uh, sense, I would say Weiler is more stylistic. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking more about uh, the idea of stuff within a movie that calls attention to it being a movie. Um, and is okay with the audience understanding that it's part of a movie to tell it. So when we talk about Billy Wilder, we have to talk about stuff like narration um, okay, and meta, okay. meta elements that yeah. call attention to the audience that as they're watching something, there is a storyteller telling the story, there is a camera, there is someone, uh, There, this is a made-up world, and stuff like that. Whereas with Wilder... Um, stuff is very grand, grand, and he has all of his techniques, which we are going to get into. But at the end of the day, a lot of his techniques don't call attention to the fact that it's a movie, uh, right? It's, it's it's one of those things like the idea of stylism at style being stylistic as a term is kind of like a false term, right? It, it's because mm -hmm. everyone has style, even people who hide the style. Uh, That's their style. Have style. That just is their style. Stylism is calling attention to the fact that you have a style and being okay with that. Not necessarily to showboat, but that's just how you tell a story. So in Weiler's case, he, I feel very immersed in the world when I watch a oh, Weiler yeah. movie. I don't, I, it, I normally forget that I'm watching a movie while I'm watching a Weiler movie. And the best years of our lives might be one of the best examples of that uh, because, uh, because of how kind of built around everyday life it is uh and kind of like this one extraordinary period in time but how it was essentially everyday life for everybody in that period of time so it just felt very normal it felt like i was watching just snippets of people's lives over the course of the movie mm -hmm. um he doesn't go too fast with the camera which is weird because his movies feel very nicely paced um but one of the things he's very good at is not cluttering up with dialogue and just letting the performance sit. Um, oh. And he has this reputation, and we're, we're going to have to talk about it because sometimes he gets a little extreme with it. Let's get he has a nickname it. called 40 Take Weiler, <laughs> and it's exactly what you think it is. Um, and it, it, it's just him doing take after take after take after take. And the way he does it ends up with him getting these really good dialogue-free, silent bits of acting, mostly reactions, uh, stuff like the Kuleshov effect, like a character reacting to something in a different cut, um, or a look between two characters because they've done the scene 30 times and they basically live in that scene now and they are those people. Um, did that you just find make any it of the, pop. Did you find any of the anecdotes of actors' point of view? I saw on, on one or style? two earlier uh, where it was... Uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been like somebody in this movie, uh, or was it or was it uh, Gary Cooper in Roman Holiday, who was like, "Yeah, he just kept making me do it over and over." When I asked him what I was doing uh, wrong, he was like, "It's trash. It's not good. Like, just do it good," um, which isn't great directing. Well, but it got there. Yeah, so that's that's similar to um, I saw this in in. A couple of different places. I think Charlton Heston talks about it, but basically, like, yeah, that would that would be his style is to just ask the actor to do it multiple times, and when they ask for direction, he would just say, "Just do it again." He wouldn't like tell them what to change. He wouldn't tell them. Basically, just getting them to do a bunch of the same thing or like just change something 
And I think, because my first impression too is that that's like lazy directing, but I think what it what it ends up doing is making the actor think about it. It makes them think about, okay, well, what can I do differently? What what can I, um, you know, change about my approach to the scene or the actors or whatever? Um, but yeah, it was like he would just give them nothing, and then but they would almost all of them that I read said that like he would talk to them after the film comes out and he would just like in parting say, Hey, you did really good in that movie. I just rewatched it. And they're like, what? I don't even know what I did. <laughs> uh, and Weiler Man. would be like, yeah, we, I, I would have them do it so many times that then, uh, you know, in the, in the cutting room, I would like kind of have the right shot, uh, or the right performance that I wanted. But then since we'd done the scene so many times, like something was off in the background or something. And then you have to pick, you know, whether or not you're going to use the one that's technically correct or the one where the actor did the better performance. Um, so it's again, kind of in contrast to Billy Wilder, who we talked about as being like extremely economical, like we're going to shoot this shot and then we're going to shoot this shot and then we're going to shoot this shot. And we're only shooting what's going to go in while Weiler is like, uh, you know, we're just going to shoot it as many times until I'm happy with it and uh, the actor figures it out. Yeah, sounds like he spent a lot of time in the cutting room for sure uh, oh, yeah. to make that work. It's a very interesting, very instinctual kind of directing. Um, and it kind of jives with the fact that he's worked with so many huge, hyper-talented actors. Yeah, uh, none of them like, seem resentful of it, surprisingly, because when no. you hear the same story of of Hitchcock or um, Kubrick, it's always like, oh my gosh, he was a beast and a tyrant to work with. But Weiler, they're like, oh no, he was great. He was just really demanding. Yeah, yeah. I think there's one case that we might have to talk about today where he kind of goes a bit extreme on that. Yeah. Um, but even in that case, I don't think there's a lot of resentment attached to the story after the fact. Um, right. Which is interesting, and I, I don't really have an answer for um, but just a good guy. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, he's he's definitely I don't know. He's one of the troublemakers. I think he understands uh, people who like to buck systems, which makes him like a weirdly good fit for somebody to be in charge of a set. So I don't know. It's very interesting, but it works, and it kind of leads to the style, uh, a style that coincidentally built off of all of these silent looking uh, looks and expressions jives very well with his camera style of deep focus mm-hmm. um which uh jonathan i'm sure you have some examples you want to talk about in this film of deep focus there's a few very famous ones yeah yeah like you already mentioned the the most famous one is the one um when al makes fred call peggy and tell her that he can't see her anymore um and super tense scene and we get this moment where where Homer is playing the piano uh, with his hooks, which we're going to get into in a second. Um, and Al is watching them play. And then in the very back of the bar, there is a phone booth and there's a spotlight on the phone booth and we see Fred in there. And so the scene plays out with uh, Homer playing the piano in the very front of the frame, Fred behind the piano or Al behind the piano and Fred all the way in the back. But you can see all of it. Um, And actually, uh, oh gosh, who is it? Um, There's a whole thing with um, uh, Andre uh, Bazin, who's one of the 
one of the actual starters of surrealism, but this this idea of deep focus and being able to see everything he thought of as like a way to to kind of progress film into showing reality like more as it is. Because if you're in that situation, you would be able to shift your attention to any of those spots in the frame. Like the real action of the scene is happening in the very back in like a box. It's completely silent. That's like, it's like 10% of the frame, but that is where your attention is. Yeah, the um, whole frame is a tunnel to pointing you at that, but also giving you the other characters' impressions, understandings, and reactions to what's going on. Yeah, and if you do that, like, like today, we're so obsessed with shallow focus, which is kind of understandable because it was a thing that only cinema cameras could do for a long time, and now a bunch we're of so- consumer cameras can do it. But We're the so way obsessed you- with shallow focus that we have routinely, I routinely process shots for work that are just straight up out of focus. And when I mark it, it comes back later as like, nah, we meant that, that that's the style. Oh, out of focus? Yeah. It's cool, Which right? has a uh. place, but not in everything. So like the way that this would happen is you would see, you would see, um, you could probably get Homer and Al in the same focal plane and uh, kind of see that action. Then you rack focus back to the back of the thing and then back. And then it's like the camera is shifting your attention for you. And then that does take you out of the movie. But here, everything is presented at the same time and you're able to shift your focus around and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, the scene, the drives, scene plays for a while too. It, it meshes so well with his um, immersive style already. Um, where you just kind of feel like you're part of the movie to just let you essentially just sit in this movie and and stare at it and pick essentially your shot or frame. Um, it's kind of like what they've been trying to do with the idea of a VR movie, but like better than anyone could ever do with a VR movie. Yeah, because there is there is still limitations. Um, you still have your frame, but within yeah, you, that still frame, the, you have complete uh, freedom. Yeah, there still is that artistic choice. Um, there still is that curation, right? Yeah, and, and it's it's one of those things. I don't know why I'm I'm suddenly on this tangent. Uh, it's probably because I've worked on a a little bit on a VR movie once and it wasn't good. Um, but the idea of a VR movie is possible. It's just a lot of work because you have yeah. to curate every square inch of where the uh, where the 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 viewer is essentially looking, so that or everywhere they look is a looking. good. Yeah, everywhere the viewer is looking is a good choice, which is hard when the view angle isn't, you know, 70 degrees within a bar on a long, on a deep focus camera and lens setup. It's yeah. 360 degrees. You have to look up at the ceiling and have the ceiling be interesting. <laughs> yeah, which is impossible because there's, I mean, in life, there's not, like, every angle is not the right angle to be looking no. at to be focused on what you should no. be. The filmmakers are doing you a service by cutting out the boring parts. That's right. literally their job. And one of the things they drill into your head in film school and film 101 is if it's not interesting, cut it. Get it out of there. Don't waste your time on it. Don't clutter it up. Um, <laughs> so, or rather, if it's not adding to the story. I wouldn't yeah. say if it's not interesting because that's really subjective. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, but yeah. Um, all that is to say that the, the curation and work that goes into making a really good deep focus shot is very impressive. And it also happens to jive really well with Weiler's storytelling style to begin with. 
um, yeah. and his pr- his his pre Kubrickian uh, <laughs> mini takes uh, set up. All right. Well, while we're talking about this scene with uh, uh, Homer at the piano, we got to talk about Homer because um, this is our non actor. This is a uh, real vet. I mean, obviously, a lot of these actors are real veterans of the war, but also a lot of them were actors before and they come back and, you know, they're, they're classically trained. But for this film, Weiler wanted an actor that had lost both of his hands. And so they find um, Harold Russell and he is doing this. And you can tell that he's he's, you know, kind of green in the acting world. Um, and Weiler would even say, you know, t- speaking of his demanding uh, uh, style that he would kind of put his his kid gloves on with uh, with Russell and coach him through it a little bit more. And he would also let the other actors kind of help him out. Um, mm-hmm. And he does a great like I think at, for the first like 20, 30 minutes of the film, I could really tell that like, yeah, he he there's something about him that feels like really stiff. Um, but by the end of the film, like you just believe it and you kind of have to, cause at some point, I mean, so it's, it's hard to say who the main character of this film is, but all the characters kind of revolve around, um, Homer in a weird way. Like the, he's not the most important one, but he's almost the one that, that guides the story and, uh, really keeps everything from falling completely apart. Uh, so it's like each, each of the storylines, um, you know, the one with, with Fred and Peggy is kind of the, the dramatic thrust, but they're all really integral to each other. Um, and I think even, even, um, uh, Al's storyline, the, with his wife who, you know, of the romantic relationships, they have the most stable, of the romantic relationships because he comes back to his wife and they, you know, they take some time to get back to their regular intimacy, but they, they get there and they don't fall apart, but there's still one line that kind of haunts me about their relationship throughout the thing. And that's when the first night when he comes back and he takes them out to every bar and just gets slammed. And then his wife, like, pretends like she's some random girl at a bar and he starts going along like, no, this night is just for us. And you get the sense that she figured out that this is what he was like when he was in the war and, you know, didn't know if he would be coming back. And so, and yet she doesn't let it kind of destroy her trust in him. It's it's like Mm -hmm. so underplayed. It's less, it's a tiny line that is never made a thing out of, but it adds a whole layer of depth to their relationship. I yeah. think it's it's really interesting. It's tiny, but I think it's it's it, like we've said before with this being such a timely movie. Um, I think it works because I think a lot of people in the audience in 1946 would have known exactly what they were talking about. Oh yeah, um, and it's also echoed in a one of the fights that uh, Fred has with his um, just terrible first wife. Um, she now ex-wife she's not good uh she's i guess understandable in a way but she's also like 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 she, I, I guess she was brought up in a system that kind of like forced her to take some of these ideas but then she took those ideas to the extreme and it's just real it's real nasty 
by the it's time also understandable on both sides because you kind of feel like well why would fred have married her but again the underlying she, assumption yeah. on all of this is what i might not come back so I let me marry done. the prettiest girl that i can find and mm -hmm. then he has to deal with that later yeah and then they have that fight where they're where uh he's like oh i bet you had a lot of visitors here uh, while I was gone, and she was like, "And what were you doing in France and Britain while while you were over there?" Mm -hmm. uh, and it was kind of like, "Well, and he doesn't okay. respond to that." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's not, uh, it's not a huge thing, but it's just kind of like one of those underlying, um, I guess, understandings of like that kind of traumatic situation. Um, but yeah, again, it's very subtle. It's very real. Um, and it would be easy to miss if it, the film wasn't already so engrossing because you feel yeah. so sympathetic and attached to all these characters. Uh, literally, by the time... I think I was attached to all these characters by the time they were uh, getting out of the cab and each one was like, oh, what if we just go do something else first? And everyone was like, uh, 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 we, know, we understand where you're coming from, bud, but you gotta go home. That is a genius you know, for lack of a better term, like save the cat moment where you just like are immediately on their side because you see how afraid they are of trying to get back to normal life um, uh -huh. one at a time. Um, yeah, and I will say like uh, another part about this film that's so good and that's so, and, like there's such a layered tapestry of themes in here and one of them is the idea of communication. Like you said, the silent generation where they come back and they wouldn't talk about it and the film like handles that like the the whole thing with with Peggy and Fred is that Peggy is there and listens to him and his wife just wants to go party and doesn't care about his war thing even Al's son who well first of all <laughs> that whole he's scene where he's like bringing seconds yeah he's not on very long but that whole scene where uh where Al comes home is like here here's a Japanese flag that I pulled off of a dead soldier like okay thanks dad what am I supposed to do with that um, yeah, I also I also totally get the kid being like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. there's this this whole thing of of Al's family like has such an open communication. He even says that he's like, you know, it may be old fashioned, but we talk to each other. And the way that like Peggy expresses all of her feelings with her parents and stuff like that. That was super um, healthy. That whole scene was, was like, it was like, wow, look at how like kind and loving and supportive this family is. And then the same thing runs through the uh, the Homer storyline where he he is in love with his girlfriend from high school. Um, but his girlfriend's still in love with him. Yeah. But he's too scared to open up to her uh, because of because of his um, uh, disability now. And so that the scene where he lets her like basically go through his getting ready for bed routine and taking off his arms, literally taking off his arms and uh, being completely helpless with her is the thing that rekindles their relationship because he finally lets her talk. To I know this, like, He's, there's so much built into that. I think about, like, the boldness and, like, like not in typical keeping of, like, that standard idea of, like, what what a man does for the time but like it's such a glorious scene when this man decides to be totally vulnerable and weak and that yeah. was what he was scared of i don't think because because when she sees it i i think there's two things going through her head i think she's like one oh that this is it that that's all you were scared of but also like 
she understands that what I think he was really scared of is being vulnerable and weak with somebody. And that's something that everyone has to learn at some point if you want to be in a relationship. And like I, that whole scene is just so sweet and like healthy and good. I, I liked it a lot. I love this movie. It's a good movie. There's a reason I yeah. gave it five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of layers to it. Um, that that does, in a sense, kind of kind of transcend it. Like these these interpersonal relationships are things that happen all the time, and so it does transcend out of its moment. But it's all like couched in this in again this very timely time capsule. But I think all of that should go to you know. And uh, we've done a whole series on World War II films, and we're just like we're adding about to, to do a that. whole series on the best years of our lives at this rate. I know, right? Um, but I think that like movies like this are great because they have these timeless human qualities, but they're also still like a warning. Like we don't want to have to deal with these exact problems again, so let's yeah. not do that World War II thing again. Yeah. Well, two thoughts I had while I was watching this movie is one, one of the things we didn't focus a lot on in the. Um, in the World War II series was like that aftermath of like yeah, people we had picking a, up the pieces and like restructuring their life afterwards. It was mostly was like, the, oh, yeah. the Nazi aftermath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing I was thinking is that, yes, this is a very specific movie to like World War II, but also like for other veterans of other wars who come home after war and suddenly find that, oh, while they're overseas, they were heroes, and now when they're back, yeah. they're just a, a nobody vet. Like, there's still no some pressures there. Yeah. 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 Well, when, when he, <laughs> you apply to a job, and they're like, what do you know how to do? I can bomb things. <laughs> uh, can you work a soda counter? Um, like, yeah. 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 But even no, that, it's, with it's at hard. the end, when he finds the other vet, and he's like, I know how to learn stuff, just like I learned how to fly that plane, which I didn't know how to do. And the other vet's like, all right, I get that. I had to do the same thing. And that... Gets yeah. him his job eventually. Persuasion check with advantage. All right. Good stuff. Um, shall we Let's move, move on? on. <laughs> it's been so long. It's nearly an All hour right. into the podcast. Let's. We got two movies in Rome, and we're starting with Roman Holiday from 1953. Jason, take it away. Roman Holiday from 1953. Crown Princess Anne's life is a world of appointments, meetings, greetings, formalities, and pleasantries. It is a ruthless, unending, inescapable schedule. Joe Bradley's life is a slog of uninteresting work and scraping by financially at the Rome branch of the American News Service, until one night when Princess Anne decides to take a little vacation, sneaking away. Stumbling upon her, Joe finds himself facing the story of a lifetime and 24 hours to capture Anne's Roman holiday. All right, Jonathan, we get to talk about your girl again. We get to talk about Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) She's back. Um, basically in a role where, again, like we talked about in the bio, William Wyler kind of helped her adjust to being on the big screen. Um, we, we did like a whole bio on her before in our Hepburn versus Hepburn series, but, uh, she kind of has some acting and performance background, but by the time she got to Hollywood, you kind of have to relearn the whole thing again, how to act on the big screen and take care of that. And of course, this isn't in Hollywood. This is in Hollywood on the Tiber, as it was called at the time. Um, but here we are in uh, in Rome with Hepburn learning how to be on the big screen. And man, oh man, does she just have it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's actually a, a funny um, 
note. Like Audrey Hepburn, they they did someone did a screening for her, and a bunch of the directors started wanting to to work with her because she was so different from the other um, leading actresses of the time, uh, just in her look and in her manner and stuff like that. And I think we talked about that uh, extensively in our Hepburn versus Hepburn series. Um, but in this case, uh, Gregory Peck actually insisted that Audrey Hepburn's name appear uh, at the front of the title, right under his name. Uh, even though it was like introducing, she was a new actor, but he was like, she's gonna be huge, and if her name isn't up there, I'm gonna get, get so much flack for it later on. Um, oh, yeah. And he was right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good call, too. Good call. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, that just makes it such much that much more of a powerhouse of a movie mm-hmm. having both Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn in it, right? Um, it's so interesting seeing Gregory Peck in this type of role because I feel like uh, there were a lot of screwballs that I was thinking of. Um, I think especially it happened one night because the setup of the journalist and the princess is almost exactly the same. Um, it's just not a bus movie. <laughs> um, but in it happened one night, there was... Like, uh, oh gosh, the, the chemistry is a little bit different. And I think it's interesting that Roman Holiday starts with her literally being drugged and then Gregory Peck has to figure out what to do with that. Um, and there's this thing again, it comes back to Clark Gable. Yes. Clark Gable. Gotcha. Okay. Um, from that was, it happened one night. Um, but in, in this film, there's there's this dichotomy that we've talked about a little bit in like shop around the corner but basically at the beginning Gregory Peck has all the power in the situation and Audrey Hepburn is literally drugged and there's uh like we we're talking about in the last film Weiler is so well suited for directing actors in these really kind of like intimate situations because here we're seeing Gregory Peck like he has a lot of control over this woman that he's never met and uh he kind of, you know, he is the upstanding man of the, you know, golden age and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just interesting to see how those situations play out. Like when he takes her back to his apartment and she keeps wanting to get in the bed and he's like, no, you can't. Uh, and he's kind of being the um, the tough guy a little bit. But the way that it plays off is it like it works really well. Yeah, honestly, like their uh, relationship again, there's deceit but there's like deceit on both sides and neither one's well really yeah. trying to take advantage of the other until a certain point and then they don't so it ends up being honestly quite sweet mm-hmm. um and being like just the holiday the princess needed um uh, to to get back on track and do her thing again um but but yeah it is interesting and i feel like that's Another one of Weiler's kind of signatures, especially comparing Roman Holiday to like best years of our lives, is like kind of like that upstanding, like morally um, with it leading man. Um, and and most of the conflicts that they have is like, yeah, I don't know. Should I make like a journalistic story about this woman who I just found out is the princess? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. Uh, maybe I won't. I like her too much. Um type of stuff and yeah I don't know it's again it's very really... similar to it happened one night but the, one of the differences is that in it happened one night they actually are able to get together and here it's the the 
ending is so interesting because it, it, you know, it's like this really isolated moment. Like it's this thing that happened, but they, you know, they can't end up together, but they can still be grateful for having the day that they had or whatever. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's not unsatisfying. It's just not your typical like rom-com ending. Nah, nah. It's, it's, it's really, I love the ending scene. Um, I love the uh, satisfaction on Gregory Peck's face as he walks out um, where he's just like, oh, well, I made a friend and I had a good time and I did the right thing. Um, I love the little tells, um, which Wyler's so good with, like building up these little tiny signals to the audience, Um, like how uh, everyone's taking pictures of the princess and then our photographer friend goes up and takes a picture with his lighter. The inclusion to, of the photographer character is a is a genius element of the story. It's what it needed, right? Because it if it was just those two, it would it could have easily felt you could have lost the idea. It could have felt too easily like he was really trying to take advantage of her. Mm-hmm. But with the the other guy, it becomes more of a screwball thing. You know, he's always spilling stuff on him to get him to not say the right <laughs> thing in the right time. And there's always the constant reminder that what they're doing here is trying to be undercover reporters they're just terrible at it um and and kind of mussing around with that as the the day and night slowly become less about that and more about um the friendship that's building yeah yeah i mean other than that it's kind of kind of just a romp movie and i feel like this is this is the origin of a lot of similar rom-coms that we see even to this day where it's just like the whole like there's kind of a conflict but mostly it's just like almost a travel log yeah 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 it's a roman holiday both for the people <laughs> in the movie and the people in the audience yeah uh, all shot on location like, hey, i think it fun. says that in the opening titles shot on location. very very much so in fact one of the reasons that weiler eventually agreed to direct ben hur was because he was going to get to go back and shoot in rome again <laughs> well that's one reason (laughs) that that's that that's one of the reasons he did it um among many others they they did kind of have his force his hand to direct her but eventually he did it um but but yeah essentially so so the impression the other impression i got doing some research here was that in around the late 40s i think 1949 or so was when the paramount decision hit and studios in the in america had to start divesting themselves of their theater chains and stuff like that. But they didn't have to do that in Europe. So um, a lot of studios like Paramount, which I believe is what this film was made for, um, started spending a lot of money overseas in uh, those markets where um, they could they had access to more industries. They could own more industries there, more parts of the movie-making process without being threatened with monopoly laws. Um, and they also had access to that post-war um, boom of American interest that came on the back of the flood of American investment into rebuilding Europe after World War II. So it was kind of like the perfect recipe for doing American movies in Europe and having a fun time doing it, especially for the cast and crew who were essentially on holiday while they made this movie. Um, right. So yeah, I, it honestly sounds like a fun movie to work on. I would have loved to have been with that crew for a day or seen what a, a day in the life of that crew was like that sounds yeah. fascinating yeah um 
and the whole like like the the princess in disguise setup and stuff, um, which I think is interesting because part of Audrey Hepburn's background is that she's like from, if not like a royal family, it was like a like a a really high, uh, upper class um, uh, European family before the war. Yeah, and so it kind of feels like like almost her being herself and that's kind of just the sense that she always radiates especially like like throughout her career she's just always the very poised um very proper uh, yeah has a very noble deportment but here it's it's also kind of that that um not exactly coming of age but she starts off very much as like you know the the girl who's cooped up and just wants to see the world which is almost Similar to what we talked about in Sabrina, there's actually the one of the opening scenes in both of the movies is a party happening and she's like on a balcony or on a tree just watching it like from the outside as an outsider and wanting to be part of that world, um, which is also kind of a Disney-ish type of thing. <laughs> I know, he just <laughs> said the line. Um, so there you go. But yeah, yeah, she definitely has that bear of like royalty to her that kind of makes her work on screen. Uh, very well as well as just that certain something like there's some people who just have a certain something on screen and it just works and she's one of them um, and here it is on full display and while they're having fun in Rome capturing it all and doing a travelogue and um, yeah it just it just works really well again in this one there's a lot of those same like techniques there's some defocus in effect especially when it gets mm-hmm. to this big big scenes with lots of like noble people and these formal displays and everything's in deep focus. Oh, those regal houses and whatever, so much detail. Lots of detail. It's it's again, it's all captured in high in high definition for the time and deep focus uh for your viewing pleasure. It's it, their travel slides <laughs> essentially yeah, right. uh for you There's to even see that whole sequence of the, of the um of the photographs that's just literally just like I mean, that's the whole point of the movie is to get like good travel photos. And so you get that like slideshow at the end of all the things that they did. I also uh, I think I empathize even more with Gregory Peck's character now than I did when I first saw this movie. Um, As someone who's lived in a big touristy city for a while before and hated every second of it, (laughs) like Gregory Peck does, it's it can be refreshing to have someone else in need of a vacation suddenly show up and kind of give you a different view into your own life. Um, and I think yeah. that's a very interesting angle in here too, where Gregory Peck does not like living in Rome. In fact, he's kind of stuck in Rome at the start of this movie. He's out of money. He can't afford to travel back to America. Um, and he talks about going back to New York a, a few times over the course of the movie. Um, but he definitely is way happier uh, with his life. If no richer, at the end of the movie than he is at the beginning. And it kind of took an outsider's perspective to get him there, yeah. um, which I find very interesting and, and very satisfying to because watch he was well. literally paying for all of her adventures out of his own pocket. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. Um, but uh, again, it's just, it's just a really fun movie and it's really nice to see again, like what we talked about before, how Weiler kind of had those years in the twenties and thirties where he was doing basically assignment movies. And we've talked about that with other directors before the one that pops most immediately into my head, obviously Billy Wilder, Wilder did it. But when we talked about the human condition, that's two or three. Um, I don't even know anymore, man. Uh, <laughs> but when we were talking about, uh, Oh, what's his name? He did the human condition movies. Kobayashi. Uh, Kobayashi. Uh, but he, 
he also had a very similar set of years where for like a decade, he was just, he wasn't in charge of what he made. He was just taking assignments from the uh, studio doing the best yeah. he could with it. Um, it's literally like level grinding as a director is like, it's not going to be the best assignment in the world, but you're going to learn, learn a lot when you have to do all those different genres. And we see that skill on display, not only in the individual styles that these directors develop, but also in seeing them being able to switch between styles like the best years of our lives, which is heavy drama to Roman holiday, which is much more lighthearted fair. And again, what we're about to see in Ben Hur, which is a, a historical semi-historical epic, um, I, you can't. It's a biblical epic. It's not a historical epic because Ben Hur, yeah. the character, is made up. Yeah, um, it, it's just set in historical context. Yeah, I love uh, the quote from uh, Wilder, Wilder, by the way, um, that it took a Jew to make a finally make a good uh, Bible movie. And I know I'm so fascinated by that. <laughs> He's, he was just taking a swipe at Cecil B. DeMille, but I find it so funny. Um, and then again, we're going to see him change styles totally again for The Collector in 1965. Mm-hmm. He also has the freaking... He's got a gobsmack of westerns, including a lot of really good ones. Musical uh, both silent uh, and Funny Girl. Musical Funny Girl. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but The Liberation of L.B. Jones, which was his last movie ever, looks really weird and just reading the contra- the the uh the description it looks kind of controversial too so i'm very interested yeah. to dive into that um which there won't be any talk of that on the podcast but if you want to hear more about my uh, thoughts on more billy wilder movies go check out the films discord free to join and i post short reviews there all the time anyway jonathan do you want to move on to ben hur from 1959 or do you have anything else to say about roman holiday no i think that's it let's get into ben hur all right jason take it away Ben-Hur from 1956. Prince Judah Ben-Hur is a wealthy Jewish noble and merchant living in Jerusalem under Roman rule. He cares for his mother and sister and treats his slaves as family, giving the loyal man Simonides' daughter, Esther, permission and her freedom to go get married. Judah's childhood friend, Masala, a Roman by birth, returns after military campaigns a changed man, ruthless and ambitious. He turns on Judah after he refuses to sell out Jewish discontents. Masala soon finds an excuse to have Judah arrested as a traitor and his family thrown in jail for life. Judah finds himself on an epic journey from slave to top charioteer to adopted Roman noble with a benevolent hand guiding him along his path, a path he will follow to vengeance or something much brighter. Alex, uh, we have not been... The last couple years, we've not been doing holiday-themed uh, ending episodes, but this is a Christmas movie. This is like the this ultimate Christmas, Christmas movie because it starts with Christmas and ends with Easter. So it's yeah, perfect. yeah, very, very intentionally, um, yeah, which I absolutely. find fascinating. It's also just like a fascinating idea because, well, this is based off of a book, right? Mm-hmm. That is even longer <laughs> than the movie. Yes. Highly recommend the book. Long by shot. The way. Um, in fact, isn't there like a whole section at the end where Ben Hur like fakes his death or something um, and Not goes undercover? Man, that Could might be. have been It's been a like, while since I read it. Yeah, I, I just remember reading about the development of this movie because it went through a bunch of different scripts and the guy who eventually wrote the script cut out that, supposedly cut out that section or maybe someone else had added in this section at the end where there was supposed to be another act or Ben Hur after Jesus's crucifixion uh fakes his death and goes undercover 
and essentially leads a revolt against the Romans and drives them out of Israel. It's 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 wacky. It's wacky. But apparently, like I, this is this is a sprawling, sprawling epic over like the course of thirty some odd years. Uh, very so specifically, I don't think so. But I do want to bring like that that ties into a point that I think is is important, especially in um, kind of the film, because part of the the story of the book that is it's it's kind of underlies in the film. It's not really the focus necessarily, but it's the idea of of um, basically how do you fighting with violence versus fighting with love. I mean, there's, there's a chant at the very beginning that Ben-Hur and Masala do where it says, where they, they go, um, down Eros up Mars, basically down love up war. Um, and that's kind of this mentality that over the course of the film, Ben-Hur, who is on this revenge quest is also at the same time coming into encounters with Jesus and the teachings of, you know, turn the other cheek and stuff, which is all implied, which I think is a really fascinating aspect of the film. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, as long as you understand... Jesus in a Jesus movie. I know, but as long as you generally understand, you know, kind of the, the Christian framework, you know what he's encountering every time he sees Jesus, and that is the ideas of... Oh, and I think um, Esther actually says it, is the ideas of um, love your enemies uh, as opposed to you know, fighting, which is all he wants to do is get back at Masala, get back at Masala, um, and then eventually get back at Rome, get back at Rome. Um, and another part of the of the whole Christian story is that the Jews were expecting the Christ to come as a warrior king, and he came and died and was completely subverted their expectations. So Ben-Hur is kind of the uh, personification of that and kind of having to shift that mindset um, which I think is so interesting, and it's it's there. It's 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 kind of interesting because the the love aspect doesn't come all the way around on Ben Hur's side, but you get the threads of that theme throughout the film. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure, and that's kind of like the structure of it, right? Like mm-hmm. structure of it is that Ben Hur's life is running in parallel to the events of Jesus's life, and they also structure the thematic. Uh, or dramatic, dramatic and thematic uh, problems, situations, complications, and problem solving of Ben Hur, in parallel to uh, Jesus's teachings at different points in time. And there's like four or five times where we actually see like a fragment of the man himself on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but Which is one of the deep focus shots. I want to bring up. Yes, but very intentionally, we never he's never like a full faced character in this story mm-hmm. uh, because it's not the story of the passion of the Christ or something like that. It's, it's about Ben Hur. It's in a way it's trying to extract, it's trying to apply those teachings to one man's life in the most direct way possible. Yeah. Um, which and like is, you said, which is a very interesting take on it are the parallels of the peacemaker and the parallels of the war maker. Um, because even, even Pontius Pilate, after he wins the chariot race, calls Ben-Hur the god of the, of the Jewish people. Um, and that's, again, in contrast to Jesus, who also the king of the Jewish people, but in the peaceful aspect, not in the champion aspect. Um, 
So there's <laughs> and there's so much like the 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 aspect of this film that kind of parallels with something like Gladiator, I think is also fascinating because oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Gladiator sure. is all about the championship um, and the war and the revenge. But this film has so many of those same threads, but also with the peace uh, contrast underlying it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking while I was watching this that Gladiator is kind of like Ben Hur, but you just I don't know took the religious aspect out of it entirely. Right. Um, and also, a lot of kind ways. of similar to Braveheart. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all of those, of course, are fall under like the vengeance idea and the idea of revenge, which we talked about. I think we did a whole series on vengeance before. We did. And yeah. um, the 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 conclusion was essentially that. While satisfying and potentially deserved, it often hurts like the person seeking it more than it hurts the person you're seeking revenge on. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, even when you accomplish it, it's like normally a fruitless endeavor. Um, doesn't actually benefit you in any way. So it's interesting to watch this movie with that in its uh, in in idea in your head already. Um, but all that said, of course, it's also interesting to see Weiler's techniques applied to such a big movie uh, with Every big sets to all keep in um, deep focus, um, which can lead to like these really detailed, really big scenes of this Roman world, which are really interesting to see and examine, uh, whether it be um, his the villa in Rome or uh, uh, Masala's palace in in Judea, um, or the galley, which is also really cool and super detailed. Um, and they shot that whole sea battle as well. Well, they shot a model of the sea battle. Um, <laughs> and then there was like one on deck fight scene that was probably in a water tank on the Paramount lot. Yeah. Uh, but you still get the scale of the thing. And I, th I do think it's so interesting that apparently Weiler was not a fan of widescreen, he did not want the to use the format um oh yeah he, yeah that's right this is all all cinemascope oh yeah it's it's like wide widescreen um it's is like the example of widescreen um but his thought process was that if you could see everything then there's no like focus but he was able to still use that and him and the cinematographer used a bunch of um you know tested a bunch of lenses and and techniques and stuff and so they do get those those really um, deep shots and stuff. And there's one that I love when uh, Ben-Hur is kind of, uh, he encounters Jesus doing the Sermon on the Mount, but he decides to not listen to him and he kind of goes and walks off in search of Masala. And we see this huge shot of Jesus right in the middle at the front on the hill, all the people down the hill listening. And Ben-Hur is walking in the very back and you can see Jesus' head turn and follow Ben-Hur as he walks across the frame. And it's so subtle, but that is what that deep focus is for. It's to keep all of that perspective in the, in the shot. Yeah, yeah. No, you can do a lot with the idea of deep focus and kind of like layering these shots, um, which just makes an already sprawling movie that much deeper and that much more interesting. And again, much like with the best years of our lives, it doesn't really feel that long which is weird to say because it is so freaking long but it doesn't take that long to pass uh even when it's not focused on action um uh, everything feels very pointed the setup is very clear the i goals think the chariot race is like three-fourths of the way through 
the chariot race, which is probably the most famous part of the movie, is really late. It's really late. And I know you were saying, Jonathan, that it wasn't actually shot by Weiler. It was all second unit, which is pretty common for a lot of heavy action stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was done by a a second unit. Yeah, uh, I think the only shot that Weiler actually did was the one from above the statue while all the horses are parading around, which is actually its its own thing because the film, like, they did a lot to focus on historical accuracy of uh, Rome and the sets and all that kind of stuff, but he caught some flack because the whole, like, walking the chariots around the stadium was not something that would have been done. But he he didn't want to like waste the the scene because most of the chariot race happens in medium and close up shots, which is first of all fascinating because Heston and um, uh, oh gosh the other actor are doing all of those like chariot charioteering. They did most of those stunts, which is oh my gosh terrifying. Um, Heston was already like he's familiar with horses already, but still like the, the intensity of that scene is hard to fake. Um, and, but anyway, yeah, the, the whole scene was shot by a second unit. And, uh, actually I just learned this, that Sergio Leone was one of the assistants to the second unit director. Um, which makes sense because he was working in Italy. Um, it also explains a lot uh, having researched all of the uh, Hollywood investment into like Italian studios at the time, how Sergio Leone and other Italian um, filmmakers of his cohort kind of started to get a lot of their feet wet and uh, learn a lot, of, cut their teeth with a lot of like these this American talent that's already been going for decades um, yeah. over in Italy. Um, and also, I just learned this because I always believed this. But apparently, uh, Stuntman did not die while uh, while filming the scene. I totally thought that was true, and apparently it's not. But there are some terrifying uh, accidents that, <laughs> that happened. There was actually an accident with one of the second unit director's son, who was a stuntman, where he was actually like, thrown over the, uh, the edge of the little chariot cart thing. I think it has a technical mm-hmm. name, but I don't know it. Um, and they wanted to to use the shot in wide, and so they shot a, a pickup of a close-up of Charlton Heston being thrown to the front of his chariot and having to climb his way back in, um, which is now a very like famous and kind of pivotal part of that scene. Um, Adds a lot of tension. It's a it's a good little segment. And aside from the the actual excitement of the chariot race, because it's so like the shots like really immerse you in what's actually happening. But I think what's interesting is that when we're talking about it as a revenge story, it actually takes, it takes a lot of the guilt or responsibility off of our main character for the ultimate revenge that he gets, you know, like it, it's not really like his fault. It's not like taken. He tracked him down and, and just straight up murdered him. But it was, it was Masala's own ambition that killed. Yeah. It was in the course of the game and Masala was the one not playing fair, and uh, and Ben Hur wins, and Masala is is you know his chariot's destroyed and he's trampled and stuff, um, and then his own hubris doesn't let him get the attention that he needs. So it's it's interesting that the revenge is satisfied, but not in a way that takes away from Ben Hur's character. It's not it's not a noir in an antihero yeah. type of a way. No, no, that that yeah. 
uh, it was just ashes in the mouth. It wasn't anything satisfying. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's a fitting it's a fitting into that arc. Actually, it makes a lot of sense with the themes of the story, and it's a good uh, message to send home at the end of the day that vengeance isn't really a satisfying experience for anybody. So yeah, and yeah, even yeah. even the the character says at that at that point um, when Masala's like there's enough of a man here left to hate. And Ben Hur says, I don't see an enemy. So it's, it's still not, there's still again, like Ben Hur gets it at that point. Um, yeah. So another, uh, kind of random fun fact, but when looking this up, I was, I saw some of the actors that were considered for Ben Hur and, uh, it's a pretty interesting list. So, Burt Lancaster was considered, Paul Newman, Marlon Brando, Rock Hudson, Kirk Douglas, all makes sense, and Leslie Nielsen, who was early in his career and, like, probably his career would have been very different if he had ended up in this role. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember who that is. Let me do He's the a... guy from Airplane. Oh, yeah, that's way different. Isn't it? Yeah, that would have been way different. I think he had done like a like he was a character actor at that point, and I think he had just done like a western uh, and something, and so he was kind of just like a young strapping guy. But now that's like not what we think of when we think of Leslie Nielsen. Oh, for sure. Don't call him Shirley. Um, anyway, <laughs> do you wanna do you wanna um, do you wanna move on to the Collector from 1965? Let's do it. Jason, lock us in a basement. Jason, please don't lock us in a basement. Set it up for us, though. The Collector, from 1965. Freddy, a socially awkward man with a farmhouse at his disposal, turns out to be a bit of a sociopath and stalks, then kidnaps Miranda, a girl he obsesses over. Not wanting to ransom her or turn her into a sex slave, Freddy reveals that he loves Miranda and intends to hold her captive until she loves him back. A psychological cat and mouse game ensues, one that pits Miranda's desperation against Freddy's twisted mind. All right, Jonathan, this one is kind of the curveball one from the lineup for this episode. It is Very super so. different. It's way tighter. It's under two hours. It only features two characters. Um, and like, and even Roman sets. Holiday. Yeah, even Roman Holiday featured like uh, maybe a dozen or so characters. And. Yeah, it's just it's small, it's tight, um, it's tense, um, it's a thriller, which is different. It's not. It was definitely not considered mainstream fare at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see a big mainstream director veer towards uh, genre uh, filmmaking when that wasn't necessarily part of their over at the time. Yeah, and I, I'm so I'm so kind of confused about. This movie I didn't find much about like I think this is one where directors just have like a bunch of you know projects that they accept and they do them and some of them they talk about more than others um, there's not a ton of information about this movie but it's so interesting coming from the guy who did Ben-Hur and then suddenly he does a movie I mean not suddenly it's not like right after but then he does this movie that takes place with two characters in a basement in a old like English cottage house and it's it's I it feels like it it was him trying to do Psycho. That's the only thing I can think of. But it's really uh, not the psycho. guy from Psycho uh, was considered for this role. Yeah, um, Anthony Perkins. It's I will uh, one thing that will make this make feel a little bit more part of uh, William Wyler's uh, canon 
is the fact that one of the first cuts he finished was like three hours long. <laughs> there was yeah, there's like an there's like an hour long prologue featuring like an entirely different character too. Um, that was just completely cut from the movie, um, which yeah. honestly makes sense for a thriller. But but yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting contrast between somebody who's known for dramatic epics to be moving to a small tight thriller. Um, but it also like again, you can see his experience with a bunch of different genres and westerns, which are basically genre picks. They're mm-hmm. they've been much more mainstream for a large chunk of film history, but um, they're they're also genre picks after a sort. Uh, to see, it, it makes sense to see him take the skills he picked up from there and turn it to this. Um, this is also the one where he kind of went full Kubrick. Uh, on yeah, let's just get into that. The the actress, uh, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Egger. Um, where essentially there was a point where she was fired, then she was brought back if she agreed to work with an acting coach, but the only person she was allowed to speak to um, outside of a scene was the acting coach. She wasn't allowed to speak to any of the cast or the crew um, or the director outside of that, just the acting coach. Uh, and he would just make her do... He made a point of not speaking to her, um, even from the get-go. He wanted to make her essentially feel isolated and paranoid and stressed uh, like the character would in the movie, which, again, we're creeping to that Kubrick territory. Yeah. I think nowadays... Uh, you wouldn't see that happen just for obvious reasons. That there's enough of a stigma against being Kubrick-esque that no one wants to get close to that. Abusing your actors for art isn't cool. Um, And definitely, like, what he did was, like, I I don't know if I would call it, like, full-on abuse, maybe, like, psychological abuse, definitely, like, a workplace violation, like an HR violation, for sure. Um, But it was not cool. And... I Can I just throw what? out it's that apparently performance. one of the reasons that he picked this pair is because somehow he knew that Terrence Stamp had a crush on Samantha Edgar when they were both in the same acting school. Yes, and that's actually, just like next level weird. <laughs> that's like up in your business. That yeah. That is kind of creepy. And then to make you make this movie. Oh, man. And, and the other thing is, and maybe this is just like a, a, a more modern thing, but the whole script feels very much like, oh gosh, I hate to say it, but it feels like something that, that you come up with in college when you're still trying to figure out what makes a good story. <laughs> and you're like, this, this sounds exciting. It's like a creepy guy and he kidnaps a girl to try and make her fall in love with him. Uh, and he's just like so psychotic that he can't get it through his head and that's kind of what it is but it's still like coming from a director who knows fully what he's doing um, yes and and in that sense like the the scenes work but the setup is just still mind-boggling to me yes for sure for sure it's probably too far like he didn't need to go this far for this movie i don't think i think yeah, he was kind of like this movie <laughs> he's kind of like, like playing three-dimensional fun. He's playing. He's like playing three-dimensional chess with himself. Um, yeah, it's not. It, it's. I wouldn't call it the most satisfying serial killer movie ever. Um, it's not technically a serial killer movie either. It kind of is. Like that's. There's it a hint that he's it. done it before at the very beginning. It's and 
There I is. I don't think so. There I is. think there's a there's a hint that he hasn't done it before. What what uh, are you I think, thinking? I think at the beginning there's like a point where he's like, I decided to do it again or something like that. But there's definitely a hint at the end, like kind of a twist at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I was totally again. expecting. But the um, at the beginning what he says is he bought the house, but even then I didn't think I would do it. I was just thinking about it. it so it's like he surprised himself by actually going through with it. So that's why I think this was like the first one. And especially because this is like the whole point is that this is like his first crush and and stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, either way, it's it's kind of implied by the end that he is like so demented that he is just going to keep trying this until <laughs> he gets what he wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he the, the this character is completely broken. There is there is yeah. nothing he, that um Samantha Edgar's character could have done to get out of the situation as kind of like one of the twists towards the end when you realize that, oh, he's just going to, he's he will take everything negatively. Uh, there is no answer here. Yeah. He, he, at, the, at the very end, she's just giving him everything he wants, and he's like, no, I don't want it, and then kills her. Unless it's uh, real, but he doesn't realize that it can't be real under the situation that he's created, which I think is like... The, the psychological game of chess is kind of interesting, um, and, and it is something that I think kind of elevates it, um, because it's not a straight, like, it's not Saw, right? It's not a slasher, um, but it's, it's this slow burn thing of just seeing this broken guy trying to figure out what he wants and not being able to come to terms with it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a little more than broken. He is psychotically unstable, if not mm-hmm. a full on like sociopath or psychopath or something like that. It's very he's, much like like a again. It's it's a Norman Bates, but without the the full on murderiness because it's not it's not technically murder by the end. Uh right? yeah. Wait, what? Do you say it wasn't technically murder? Yeah, it's not technically murder. How so? Well, how was it? Okay, so he kidnaps her. Okay, we're in spoiler territory, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he kidnaps her, but the she dies like more or less by accident, right? Because she he locks her back up. She trips over the heater, and then it, well, she smashed him in the head. So he goes to the hospital. By the time he gets back, she has pneumonia or something and is about to die, and then he goes to get the doctor, um, uh, and. By the time he comes, well, so he decides to not get the doctor, which might be the main, like, intentional part of it. But still, she dies because of the heater being broken and him not being there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, she she does. Kind of like a butterfly in a bell jar. But I will, I, I, yeah, at that point, he's done so much that, like, it's at least second degree murder, if not first degree murder. Like, it's it might as well be at that point. Like, yeah. Although it seems like. I mean, this dude's messed up, but it doesn't seem like murder was part of the plan. It was just no. keep her alive until she loves him, which would have been nah. indefinite. But yeah. yeah. And then, you know, it could, you know, afterwards we could speculate. It could have been, you know, arsenic and old lace thing where he realizes that she was happier when she was dead. And so the next girl he takes, he kills her too. Um, but the whole basement set also just makes me think it's so like Corman-esque. Because of the the weird like colored lighting in that little basement, um, 
and can, uh, I feel like we just have to put this in context, right? So this is five years after Psycho. This is in the middle of the time that Roger Corman is making his low budget, like uh, creepy thriller Edgar Allan Poe movies and shop, uh, little shop of horrors. Uh, Night of the Living Dead doesn't come out till three years later, but this still fits somewhere on that trajectory of the low budget thriller craze, right? Because that's like its own thread of cinema. Yeah, yeah, no, it was basically like the period of time where um, kind of like creepy, more, what our more modern idea of horror started to creep out there and serial killers and we started to become more and more obsessed with like psychopaths and stuff like that started to emerge. So it's, it's kind of part of that as well. And it's interesting to see a, essentially like the previous era, because this is right at the tail end of Wilder's career, a, pre, a, a director from the previous era kind of trying to take on that concept of the new era yeah, um, and see his take on it. And it's not, again, it's not bad. It's not ultimately satisfying. It doesn't It doesn't feel like it falls into like the classic category of that genre. Um, maybe as like an interesting early or attempt at it. Um, and I'm sure that if Weiler had taken one or two more cracks at the genre, then he would have made something pretty dang good. But like, it's totally... It's something totally out of his wheelhouse, and just kudos for even trying that in the first yeah. place. Like, yeah, it's just like the the choice of it is the is the oddest thing I think. But you know, he takes it and he runs with it. Yep, yep. All right. Anything else to mention about the collector before we move on to overall notes? Oh, not much, except that it inspired an actual serial killer. That's all. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't heard about this, so tell me more. So in the mid eighties. Um, I'm not even going to say the guy's name, but there was a serial killer, uh, known as the Kansas city butcher or the collector, uh, killed six men and tortured them in a, a basement or something. Uh, and he cited this film as one of his inspirations for acting on his sick psychopathic fantasies. Uh, so there's that. That's why he was called the collector. Obviously. Yeah, geez, that is uh, that's not a great legacy. No, not but it is not great. Intriguing, I guess. And also, like there was no, there was like like we said, there was no like torture or intended murder in the film. So I don't know how much you can like chalk up to it, but uh, that's what he said. He's dead now. Oh, for sure. Um. Anyway, let's uh, slide into overall notes and talk about. Uh, Weiler as a whole. We've already talked about how he's kind of more immersive and less, calls less attention to his style than someone like uh, Billy Wilder. Uh, but he does have a very distinct style with his deep focus shots um, and his focus on performance and doing five billion takes until stuff feels very natural. Mm-hmm. You get these really good per- and unique performances, award-winning performances, uh, and how he makes you just feel like part of the world. And so intrigued and interested that these three four-hour epics just go by in what feels like a matter of minutes. Yeah, it's really weird actually, <laughs> because like, there, uh, Ben Ben Hur is exciting, but also has a lot of like scenes of of talking and kind of pulling out the themes. Um, the 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 best years of our lives is not exactly like again an exciting film, but like you say they. The stories are so tight, like everything feels like it has to be in there that by the time it's over, you're like, oh, yeah, that was a whole three hours. 
it felt it feels like only three hours yeah yeah oh it's quite impressive um anytime that a movie one of the biggest compliments you can say about movies that you didn't look at the runtime yeah you didn't look at you're not watching the clock to see when it'll be over it just goes by and you're engrossed in it you're only timing it by how many bathroom breaks you have to take yeah but yeah and i think the other thing that that we've seen kind of throughout his films is this this ability to get really intimate performances um out of his actors in these uh these really kind of sensitive scenes even in the collector i think that was like that's an important part of the collector is that he wants to build this intimate relationship with the girl he just doesn't know how to do it and she's trying to figure out like what her position is on all this because she's not going to fall in love with him um well step one don't kidnap them right which is it's so interesting because that's like it's the one thing that will prevent him from getting what he wants but it's the only thing he's not going to give up for it you know but that creates this really interesting dynamic that is that is inherently intimate but also like extremely tense um and that's also a thing with uh, the best years of our lives. There's a lot of tension in those uh, um, relationships, uh, the romantic ones and the the just normal friendships. Um, and again, Roman Holiday too. There's a lot of like, but but they all feel very natural, and they never feel well. Okay, except for the collector, but they never feel like like weird or creepy um, in ways that they're not supposed to. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Per- I mean, I just love the stories. I could I could watch these, a lot of these films on repeat. They are very good, and a lot of them are instant classics and probably deserve to be watched and rewatched, especially by people who are looking to become filmmakers or working that kind of, um, that kind of space. Like, they are worthy of your attention. So do recommend. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jonathan, what are we talking about next season on the podcast? Yes, this is the end of the year, the end of the season. We are coming back in 2022, uh, and we're going to start off with some fun stuff. We're going to talk We're going to talk about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, uh, who, if you're unaware, were a duo, not officially, but they acted in a lot of films together, and they were prolific as both actors and dancers. Um, and they just charmed the screen for a long time. Um, and so we're going to talk about three films starring them. Uh, the Gay Divorcee from 1934, Shall We Dance from 1937, and The Barleys of Broadway from 1949. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Way to kick off uh, the next year, the next season. Yeah, yeah, should be some nice... Uh, enjoyable holiday fair in case you want to catch up with any of these over the holidays with family um, and then be in touch with them uh, for next year's first episode uh, which should be super cool Um, what are we talking about on the bonus pod lately Jonathan yeah we do have uh, some extra content if you would like to get that over on our patreon you can join our digital community uh, where we talk about films off the air with uh, with the listeners and stuff like that. And we also have a bonus podcast. And the last film that we talked about was a short film called The Duel at Blood Creek, which was a lot of fun. And we somehow kind of sort of related it to LARPing. Um, and as Alex mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about The Memphis Bell 
and uh, continuing our William Wyler discussion on the upcoming episode. So go check that out on the Discord. Um, not on the Discord, on the Patreon and the Discord. Check out everything. And the Discord. Check out the Discord. The Discord is actually going to be very important because next season we want to start incorporating uh, the voices of our listeners. We're going to start uh, doing a little bit of extra content that relates to um, listener feedback and uh, questions and just kind of recapping some of the content and uh, discussions that happen on the Discord. So if you want to be part of that, go check it out. Anyone can join. Yeah, go check it out. Read our short reviews. Watch movies. Make me watch different movies. It'll be fun. See what Alex right, thinks Jonathan. about every Air Buds movie. Ah, uh, we've already done that. <laughs> and the Buddies movies, which I think I just did as a group because I don't think I had it in me to do them individually. Um, but yes. Anyway, that is all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 406 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at thefilmlinks. Summaries for each of the films this episode were recorded by me, Jason Harden. You can find me on Twitter at thebluejay1994. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Four, they Sorry, are trained. Real, yep. real quick, I have I, I looked it up. There is a there is a Guinness Book of Records entry for the movie scene with the most retakes for a single scene, and it was in The Shining with Shelley Duvall, oh, um, and it was a hundred and twenty seven takes. Yeah, that I think I've heard that number before. Yep. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>